Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is an industry update on M&A. If you build it, will they buy it? It's part one of a two-part conversation with my partner, Lewis Diamond. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. For Apple Podcast users, I'd be grateful if you'd give the show a review. Your input helps us to make the series better and alerts other advisors like you who may find the content to be relevant. And while you're at it, if you know others who are considering change or simply looking to learn more about the industry landscape, please feel free to share this episode or the series widely. M&A has been one of the hottest topics in wealth management over the last few years. And how can it not be, as both the number and size of deals has been rising steadily year over year for nearly a decade? According to Echelon Partners' RIA M&A Deal Report of 2021 and 2022 Outlook, there were 307 deals in 2021, a jump of around 50% over the 205 deals in 2020. Last year, we saw the deals increase in size, with the average seller managing about $2 billion in client assets. And 145 transactions involve firms with a billion dollars or more in client assets. The result? A total of some $576 billion in client assets changed hands in 2021, an increase of almost 81% over 2020, as stated in that same report. And 2022 is off to a strong start with industry leaders expecting activity similar to 2021, despite rising interest rates. The excitement around the activity has many an advisor considering their future, whether they're employees looking at their firm's retire-in-place program, a younger advisor with their sights set on building for the long term, or an independent business owner looking to advance their business to the next level. That is, they all have one thing in common, the desire to create an enterprise that will at some point garner the attention of acquirers with deep pockets. Of course, there are no guarantees, but as more wirehouse advisors contemplate breaking away, the calculus most of them need to reconcile is this. Can they satisfy their needs in the short term and still realize their vision in the long term? For instance, they're asking, why would it make sense to follow this path rather than take a recruitment deal from a traditional firm? And they're concerned about whether the sky-high multiples we're seeing now will continue into the future. Ultimately, they're wondering, if I build an independent firm, who will buy it? There's a lot to unpack here, so much so that we're separating this into two parts. In this episode, we'll talk about the opportunity, comparing and contrasting the choice to build an independent firm versus taking a sunset or recruitment deal. Then, in part two, we'll explore who the potential buyers are and what they're looking for, along with some examples of breakaways whose firms were recently acquired with some thoughts on what made them attractive to their acquirers. 
Lewis is joining me to break it all down. So let's get to it. Lewis, as always, I'm grateful to have you here for this important conversation. Absolutely. This is a very important topic. And like you said, a lot to talk about today. Okay. So let's start at the beginning. Let's talk about the trends we're seeing and why we're talking about this now. Absolutely. So you hit on a number of the metrics around the number of deals and how deals have gotten larger in your introduction. So no need to spend time there. A couple of quick stats that I'll that I'll pull out though. One is right now there's an estimated 29 distinct private equity firms that have backed RIAs, meaning they picked their horse in the race and the private equity firm has deployed capital on behalf of these RIA acquirers. So that's a massive number of different private equity firms that have identified the RIA space as being an attractive investment for their capital. And it's because of the recurring revenue nature of the business, the scalability, and also some of the demographic trends. So with that institutional capital comes a lot more capital to chase the right firms. So there's more capital behind deals, which does pump up the interest on behalf of buyers, which puts supply and demand somewhat out of balance, which is good for a prospective seller. Even in the last year, we saw major private equity firms like Bain Capital back the Carson Group. We saw KKR back Beacon Point. So now we've seen not just some of these smaller niche private equity firms, but some of the major, major players in the world back the RIA business model. So that's number one, more capital in the space. Another one is as these private equity firms and family offices back an RIA, there's multiple arbitrage, meaning they can buy a $500 million firm for eight to nine times, but the platform that they're merging it into might sell for 21 to 22 times. So that means a buyer is conceivably willing to pay decently more than what might be reasonable these days because they know they can sell the business for much more on the other side. And then I'll give you one or two other points right now. It's that there's a lot of drivers for sellers, which ultimately floods the market with potential opportunities for these buyers. It's an aging demographic based on the advisor side. This business is certainly a scale business, and we've seen the large firms get larger and have a lot of really interesting capabilities, whether it's tax preparation or estate planning or other family office services. And in general, many advisors putting their hands up and saying, I'm sick of running the business of the business, and I want to join something that's bigger and better than what I can do on my own. So I'd say for right now, those are some of the big trends. And then on top of all of it is people not wanting to miss out. With very high multiples, there is somewhat of a keeping up with the Joneses and advisors seeing their friends sell and hearing through the grapevine what they sold for and not wanting to miss the boat and miss out on what right now is a pretty special moment for independent firm mergers and acquisitions. That paints an exciting picture for someone who has a saleable RIA firm right now. But a lot of our listeners on this podcast are prospective breakaways, meaning they're advisors that are practicing or running their business at a traditional firm, considering going independent. And so I know I, and I'm sure you get asked the question all the time, how do I know that these multiples will still be around 5, 10, 20 years from now when I'm ready to sell if I go independent? Yeah, it's a really important question. And it's something that we talk to many of our breakaway clients about, as you mentioned. So no one has a crystal ball. Of course, there's no guarantee that 
multiples are going to stay high, just like there's no guarantee that the stock market is going to increase over the next number of years. But all you can point to, similar to those following the markets, is how past performance informs future results or expectations. So right now, there's more capital in the space than ever before, and the capital doesn't show any signs of slowing down. Um, if anything, there's more private equity firms, more family offices, more institutional money that's really interested in the RIA channel. And so as long as the wealth management profession is a scalable business, it's one that has the right demographic headwinds behind it. And also there's quality firms that are on the market. There's no reason to think that the music is going to stop. Of course, there is risk in that. You're trading the certainty of what could be a upfront recruitment deal from a major firm or even selling the business today for the hope that my business will be larger and more valuable in the future. So no guarantees, but I think there's pretty good reason to believe that when someone is looking to sell and they are a quality firm, that there will be no shortage of buyers. The multiples might be different. The buyers might be different. The capital may look different. But ultimately, if you build the business in the right way, which we'll talk about today, you can certainly reap the rewards at the end of the day. So for perspective, Lewis, what are valuations currently? Yeah, so first backing up a little bit, just some quick education on multiples and valuations to begin with. Independent firms are sometimes valued as a multiple of top line revenue or gross dealer concession or trailing 12, depending upon what model or, or part of the industry you're coming from. That's an easy benchmark. Everyone can kind of understand that. But most acquirers, especially any of the sophisticated acquirers, value a business as a business, which is a multiple of EBITDA or free cash flow. So from deals we're working on and just talking to experts and folks that have gone through a sale process recently, we can comfortably say that in many cases, valuations have actually increased by 30 to 40% for quality firms. And that's really just since the start of the pandemic. And again, that's for quality firms. Not everyone gets a premium to where they were. And certainly there is some of firms hearing about what others sold for and expecting their firm to just be worth the same. But as you know, there's many factors that go into evaluation, such as the scale of the business is a big driver of the valuation and what part of a multiple range you'll sit in. What's the firm's organic growth, absent market appreciation? Is there a next generation within the firm? Is revenue spread out to multiple folks within the firm? Does the firm have a unique value proposition? Is it in an attractive market, et cetera, et cetera. So a firm like that might get a premium valuation, but certainly if you build the business right, and even if you have most of those characteristics, you'll find a buyer. But for these multiples that have really increased, these EBITDA multiples, um, I would say you need to have most of those characteristics. So let me just give you a quick example just to make it more tangible. Let's assume it's a fee-based $500 million firm. Pre-pandemics, so let's say 2019, we probably would have seen that firm sell for anywhere from six to eight times EBITDA. Now, that same firm can easily be worth eight to 11 times, depending upon the growth and, and the other factors. So just in a short period of time, valuations have gone up, as an example. For multi-billion dollar firms, whether it's a breakaway or otherwise, we can see multiples as high as 18 to 21 times. So United Capital sold to Goldman Sachs um, a couple of years back for a reported 17 times EBITDA. So United Capital was massive. They had a proprietary technology platform and they were rock stars in the industry. And that was 17 times. 
So now we're saying that a firm that's probably decently smaller than United Capital can sell for more. So clearly valuations are on the rise. And if I'm an advisor sitting at Merrill Lynch, for example, today, and I said, I want to sell my business, I'm an employee at Merrill, and I want you to find me a private equity firm or a larger RIA to buy me. First of all, are those buyers interested in buying an advisor right out of a traditional firm? And if so, how might that impact the valuation of the business? Yeah, so it's, it's a really good question. If you're coming from a captive environment, or even if you're at a broker dealer and you're independent, but need to repaper the business, meaning you have to change custodians and you have to go through a transition process versus an RIA, which can keep their same custodian. And there's still some transition work, but it's much more about transitioning this, the story or the brand versus actually the blocking and tackling of moving assets. The potential buyers are different. Many big-time RIA buyers will not be interested in a breakaway because they either don't have the manpower to facilitate the transition, or from a risk standpoint, they're not comfortable with structuring a deal where not everything might come. So there's still plenty of buyers for someone who's sitting at a wirehouse. The best way, though, to maximize value if you are an advisor in a captive environment is to go independent for at least a year, have some tax returns behind you, have a steady state business. And then when you're ready to sell, then you can sell it and not get any sort of change or discount to your multiple. But we do still see plenty of clients who are maybe approaching succession and they don't want to wait a year. They, they want to align with their eventual succession plan now. So that still works. I wouldn't expect actually the multiple to be all that different, although there may be less buyers or suitors for the business. What's different though is the structure of the deal. An RIA selling probably gets 70 to 75% of the total transaction value paid at closing. If you're transferring from a wirehouse firm or some sort of captive environment, maybe a third to 50% of the values paid at closing, and the rest is put in back-end bonuses or earnouts. So structure is different because the buyer and seller are taking more risk in what's going to come over in a transition. Let's back up a second. You mentioned that in most cases, the multiple for a buyer is willing to pay for a seller is a multiple of EBITDA. But unless you're already independent and a captive advisor has no idea what his or her EBITDA number is. So how do you arrive at that EBITDA number? Yeah, that's also a very good question. A very popular one. This is one where sometimes it's more art than science. And if you talk to five different acquirers, they may say your EBITDA looks different each and every time because really what they're evaluating is if you come onto their platform, what's the free cash flow or the extra economics that's going to flow to their bottom line after paying for expenses and making sure that the profits are recognized. So different buyers, for instance, may have certain resources. Maybe they have office space that you can tuck into. So, okay, there's some cost synergies or maybe they have a compliance officer that you don't need anymore, or maybe there's an admin that you can, you can plug into. So there is some subjectivity, but in general, the way I would think to get to an EBITDA number is like this. So start off with top line revenue or your trailing 12 months revenue or your GDC. Deduct local expenses, payroll, office space, benefits, marketing, et cetera. And what you get to is your earnings before owner's compensation or EBOC. 
this would also equate to what your net payout is. So this might be for a well-run independent business, maybe 60 to 70% of your revenue. But from here, a buyer has to compensate you to keep running the business or compensate a replacement. So what we need to do is back out um, ongoing compensation for you or for someone that is going to replace your role. So maybe we'll figure 25 to 30% as ongoing compensation. So to keep it simple, uh, just really back of the envelope, very, very simple without getting too much into the weeds, the typical EBITDA margin of a well-run independent business is usually anywhere from 25 to 35% of revenues. So if you're doing 10 million of revenue, an approximate EBITDA that you can then apply a multiple to is two and a half to three and a half million dollars. It can certainly be more. We've seen plenty of firms where it's less, but to keep it really simple without having a pro forma PL and really understanding your expenses, assume 25 to 35% of your trailing 12 or of your GDC or of your top line revenue. So let me ask you a question, and I guess it's a little bit of a two-part question. If an advisor is considering going independent, then he or she is obviously taking on the opportunity cost or giving up the notion of monetizing the business in the short term via a recruitment deal. So I guess the first part of the question is, how does going independent and building a business for the long term um, compare to taking a recruitment deal? And why then would an advisor do that? If what we're talking about is at least one year, and in most cases, five to 10 years out? Yeah, very fair question. So my answer, I'll build on some of what we talked about before and try to make tangible some of these concepts. So what I would say to this advisor or this team that's considering independence over a W-2 recruitment deal, the first part of it is any recruitment deal, whether it's from a independent broker-dealer from a wirehouse, et cetera, is at ordinary income tax versus the sale of all or part of a business is at long-term capital gains. So you know your tax rates better than I do, but that's obviously a major difference as far as the after-tax proceeds from a deal. Like we were talking about earlier, the answer to doesn't make sense to sell your business on the open market as an independent versus taking a recruitment deal, which one is better? The answer really does depend upon the size of your business and how attractive your business is to a buyer. Because for certain size businesses, you may be better off just getting a recruitment deal that's based upon a multiple of your trailing 12 or of your GDC. But certainly for larger businesses, or even we'll say mid-sized businesses, it's actually hard to find an example where an advisor wouldn't be better off, especially on an after-tax basis, selling their business versus taking a recruitment deal. So let me give you an example. We talked before about a $500 million firm that's mostly or all fee-based. Let's say that firm has $4 million of trailing 12 or of revenue. So let's take that 35% EBITDA margin that we discussed. So 35% of the $4 million. That gives us about $1.4 million of EBITDA. So this is the amount that a buyer would acquire after giving you a market rate compensation for running the business. So let's take the 1.4 million of EBITDA and let's apply a 10x multiple because we're going to say before we said in probably 8 to 11 times would be the multiple for a firm of this size. So we're giving a 10x because it's a firm that is growing pretty well. They have some next generation. So they're not the not top top as far as um, their peer group, but they're certainly very desirable. 
So we're going to give them a 10x multiple of EBITDA. So 10 times 1.4 million is about $14 million. So this is $14 million at long-term capital gains versus $4 million producer going to a wirehouse after hitting or assuming they hit all of their back-end bonuses, they grow, et cetera, maybe they get to about $12 million, maybe a little bit more. And this is that ordinary income. So this is a better structure for an advisor because one, it's $14 million at long-term capital gains versus $12 million or so at ordinary income. They're likely to get probably about 75% of the $14 million paid at closing versus having to wait five years or sometimes more, and also the uncertainty of whether they're going to hit the full deal in a traditional deal sense. So it's more certainty, better after tax, and even better pre-tax in this example. But let me ask you a question. A recruitment deal is for now. So that $4 million revenue generator can get $12 million, let's say over the next five years. But if they trust that they're in growth mode and they feel that they're pretty likely to hit the back end bogeys, they know with certainty that they know who the buyer is, obviously the firm they're joining. They get a good percentage, probably half of that 300% upfront versus much delayed gratification. I mean, you know, you're saying somebody would have to wait at least a year before selling their firm before they would be really attractive to the right buyers and for the right multiple. But in most cases, you and I know, if you're going to the trouble of building a firm, it's probably five to 10 years of delayed gratification. So how do you reconcile that? Yeah, that's extremely fair. So this is where it's all about risk tolerance. It's about how you want to live your business life. It's about your own personal financial situation and what it is you can wait for or what what you're willing to wait for. There's plenty of advisors we work with who understand the math that I just shared, but they want the certainty. They want to monetize now. If they're going to move, they want to make sure that they're able to take some chips off the table. So independence is absolutely not for everyone. This example is very compelling to someone who does have, we'll say a medium to long-term orientation. They're willing to delay the gratification because they're bullish either on their growth or in their portability and are willing to wait in order to reap greater financial rewards down the line. So there's a reason why the the wirehouses are still very attractive homes for advisors. Firms like First Republic and Rockefeller are doing really well. And up and down the spectrum of the landscape, there's firms that are paying traditional recruitment deals and winning versus the independent space. Certainly, it's important to consider the financial implications of someone choosing to go independent, but I think it's worth reminding our listeners that it probably isn't enough for most people to build something where they're going to get better tax treatment or more money overall for their business five or 10 years from now. In a lot of cases, the real benefits to both clients and advisor along the way of being a business owner. And those benefits are probably the biggest thing for the advisor is greater freedom and control in terms of how they service clients. Agency over their professional life is probably a good way to say it. And for the clients, it's a matter of moving more to this fiduciary mindset, really knowing that the advisor and the client sit on the same side of the table and that the advisor is held to a fiduciary standard, really doing everything in the best interest of clients. Is that fair? 
Yeah, I think that is very, very fair. And that we can, I think we've done episodes on this and there's a lot more to be said about the qualitative reasons why someone might prefer independence over a W-2 model. Because certainly the math has to make sense. But if you don't want to be a business owner, you don't want the extra responsibility, then forget about the math because it's not going to be a good fit for you. I would like to call attention though to other than the valuation of the business, there's also a number of other financial benefits of going independent versus taking a W-2 recruitment deal. Building enterprise value, certainly. And it's not just building enterprise value for what my valuation is today, but every five or six years with fee-based businesses, they tend to double in this industry. And if you buy into the premise of the independent space, which is more control, ability to serve clients better, ability to market more freely, it also translates to higher growth rates which will build your enterprise value even more. So it's one thing to think about this $4 million advisor with the $14 million valuation today, but likely the exercise is, what do we project or EBITDA to be five to 10 years out? That's an exercise I can certainly walk anyone listening through. Feel free to reach out and I can walk you through valuation model. It's actually very interesting. Another financial component is operating leverage. So as fixed costs remain the same, an advisor can add a dollar of revenue to their bottom line and it's going straight to their pockets versus today operating leverage goes to the firm. You also have higher payouts. Even if you're paying to outsource certain functions, I would still expect a decently run independent firm to net anywhere between 60, even up to 75% of revenue, which is much more than what they stand to gain in a W-2 environment. You also have multiple ways to monetize the business. So it's not just a sunset program when you want to retire from a traditional firm, but if you're independent, you can sell a portion of the business. You can sell half the business. You can sell the whole thing. You can sell within your team. You can sell to a client. You can sell to a family office. You just have many more ways or bites at the apple, if you will, to monetize portions of the business or take chips off the table. And then we already talked about the tax treatment of deals and how long-term capital gains versus ordinary income, but also the tax benefits of owning a business. So being able to own a building and pay yourself rent and many other creative ways to save on taxes as an independent business owner. So a lot to go through there. Some of it is somewhat hard to conceptualize or quantify today, but there's certainly many solid financial benefits of going that route. One of the benefits that we haven't mentioned is the flexibility for either a soon-to-retire advisor or at some point retiring advisor with how and when they can retire versus the retire-in-place programs that the big firms are using to prevent attrition. So how does this concept of M&A within the independent space compare to these wirehouse sunset deals? Yeah, so it's actually, it's the concept isn't that different than the example we were giving before with the $4 million advisor who's weighing a recruitment deal. We're saying the recruitment deal is about 300% versus selling the business on the open market. Very, very similar to a Wirehouse Sunset deal. The Wirehouse Sunset deals could be anywhere from one and a half, maybe up to three or even three and a half times, depending upon the firm and the tenure of the advisor and the size of the business. So it's a very similar exercise as far as How does it compare to selling the business as an independent? But the other benefits are the advisor has flexibility with how and when to retire versus a very prescriptive, out-of-the-box solution of monetizing within a wirehouse. So it's 
options on what you want your role to be. It's options on when to retire. It's options to sell a piece of the business, but still keep some equity. It's an option to stay on as a consultant for as long as you'd like. It's an option to work three hours a week and get paid a salary and get benefits. So a lot of flexibility for the retiring advisor, but more importantly, you're giving more agency and control to the next generation. So instead of them being bound to a firm for five to seven years, we're seeing it even longer these days, depending upon the structure, you're giving them a chance to flex their entrepreneurial muscles, have more control over the business, and ultimately empower them more in your succession. Two other things to note, aside from the tax treatment, ordinary income versus long-term capital gains, is that a seller of an independent business can get the funds faster. So it can get the full deal proceeds within one, maybe even up to two years, versus it might take five to seven years as a seller in the wirehouse world. So a number of, we'll say, softer benefits on top of the more lucrative tax treatment and pre- and post-tax proceeds of selling the business on the open market. And I I agree with all of that. Let's pivot then to the notion of, or maybe talk about some examples of top wirehouse teams that broke away, went independent, and have actually sold. Yeah, this is important because everything we've talked about to date in this episode has been all talk. There's no proof behind it. It's really just taking our word for it. So I think one of the best ways to really understand these concepts and drive it home is to look at some representative examples. So I got... um, five or so different examples here. I'll note that we're not at liberty to share valuations because either there's non-disclosure agreements in place or because they're private company transactions where the multiples aren't released, but at least can give the listeners a sense of who these folks sold to and just kind of the scope of what's possible. Funny enough, most of these folks have been guests on our podcast at one point, at one point or another. One example would be Margaret Deccant who left Morgan Stanley with $2.2 billion in assets in 2016 with her team. They sold to Hightower in December of 2021. Again, don't know the multiple, but as reported to be quite high, something in the low to mid-teens. Another example would be Justin Berman, another podcast guest, who left Goldman Sachs during the financial crisis to start his own multifamily office. He sold to Cresset, a Midwestern-based multifamily office in 2021, for when he was at $4.8 billion in assets. Another example, also from the podcast, also sold to Cresset, coincidentally, was Paul Pagnato. His business, Pagnato Carp, left Merrill Peabig in 2011, went to Hightower, and then left Hightower to launch an RIA, and again, sold to Cresset. That was in 2020. Fourth example would be Corian Capital. Chris Copps and his team broke away from Merrill Peabig in Southern California, They launched with Dynasty Financial Partners in 2015, then sold a part of the business to Merchant, who was also a podcast guest. They're a minority investor. And then actually, interestingly enough, in February of 2022, Corian sold to CI Financial, the publicly traded Canadian asset manager who's been on absolute tear in buying up US uh, wealth management firms. So um, and in Corian's case, their assets almost doubled since they broke away. And they actually got two bites of the apple. They sold the minority portion of the business to Merchant and then sold the full business to CI, but still retain operational control. Two other examples here, and there's many, many more, would be the Luminous Capital guys. Mark Sear and David Ho, they left Merrill in 2008. They built the business, sold it to First Republic in 2012 for what then was a record multiple. 
and then actually broke away a second time in 2019 and will likely sell their businesses again for another very high multiple, probably far more than what they sold to First Republic back in 2012. And then lastly, a bit of a different twist, but still important, would be Jim Gold. So Jim was a wirehouse manager. He started Stored Partners along with a couple of other folks back in 2013. The company is a recruitment machine, is now over $25 billion in assets, and they've monetized portions of the business to the Pritzker family office and to a Utah-based multifamily office as well. So just here, this is really just off the top of our heads, six very tangible examples of highly successful wirehouse breakaways who built it the right way and then sold it. And there's many, many, many more to discuss. And if anyone has questions, certainly can reach out and we can share more details. My head is spinning and I'm blown away by this list, which again, as you indicated, is only a partial list. And with the exception of Chris Copps from Corient Capital, which we hope will be a podcast guest in the coming months, um, even the Luminous guys, we did a two-part episode with them as well. They've all been podcast guests. You can hear their stories in this series. But it's extraordinary the notion that if you build it, they will come. And probably a better way to say it, if you build it the right way, they will come and they will come with a whole lot of money. But more to come in our next episode. So M&A activity aside, the message is this. Advisors have options both as employees and business owners. So whether they want to bet on the longer term and build a business that can sell for the highest value at the end of the day or opt to remain as an employee or anywhere in between, the options to monetize exist within everyone's reach. And it all depends upon your entrepreneurial appetite and risk tolerance. So be sure to join us for part two of this episode as we dive more into the different paths that advisors can take to build a firm to make it the most attractive to buyers and has the greatest potential for the highest valuation at the end of the day. And ultimately answer the $64 million question, if I build it, will and who will buy it. So Lewis, I want to thank you again. It was great as always for joining me and I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation. Yeah, definitely. More to come in part two. Thank you. I thank you for listening and I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the articles link to browse recent topics. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached by cell at 973-476-8578 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And keep in mind that our services are available without cost to the advisor. You can see our website for more information. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. And if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, I'd be grateful if you gave it a star rating and review. It will let other advisors know it's a show worth your time to listen to. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. <music>